Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. Welcome back, guys. I'm back with Claudine, and today we are talking about the 30th anniversary of one of the sections of the Louvre that I cannot pronounce. So I'll let Claudine have all the fun with that, so you guys can learn how to pronounce it correctly as well. Yeah, well, I could pronounce it all thanks to a French pompier. And so, you know, surprisingly, I was able to be with a French pompier and retain enough information to say a word correctly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a struggle. Um, but the Louvre, we talked about it back in August because it was the 230th anniversary of the Louvre itself. But we're talking specifically, there's two special things that happened on November 18th, specifically, both in 1793 and then in 1993, so it's a very significant day. Um, they do this a lot in France. Like you have, you know, December 2nd, 1804 is the day that Napoleon crowned himself emperor. Well, then later down the road, it was December 2nd as well that Napoleon III decided to have a coup d'etat and name himself from president, being the first president of France to becoming an emperor himself. So I do love as a historian and then somebody that just loves these kind of dates. I love that they kind of pick these dates and they're like, nope, that's the day we're going to do it again. Yeah, it's very random. <laughs> it is very random. Um, but the Louvre itself, as we know, is very old. And we've talked about it a few times, but I've never actually, we would we should do like a four-month series of every week it's about the Louvre because I could easily do that. Um, but the Louvre itself that you, as you know, if you go to the Louvre, it is, it spans from 1190 all the way up to basically 1993. And so with the Louvre, you have all these different rulers. It started with Francois Premier, who started what we start to see today of the 16th century. Originally, uh, Philippe Auguste did the you know medieval when it was just a medieval fortress. But we are talking today about something that Napoleon III did. And I just gave somebody a tour today of the Louvre, and we were talking about that. And they he knew a lot about Napoleon III. And he was like, you know, they really didn't like him. And I was like, yeah, but it's actually Napoleon III who did the most for the way that Paris looks today with what they did through the city with Baron Haussmann, what he did at the Louvre, all of these other buildings. And so he might not be remembered as much as his uncle, Napoleon Bonaparte, but he did the most more for the Louvre than any other ruler in Paris. Yeah, completely. I mean, say what you will about him. But. <laughs> <laughs> which a lot of people don't know enough to say anything about him but, because he is really I mean that really is kind of what he's remembered for is what he did to Paris and then also when he just kind of rolled over um, when it came to the siege of Prussia but Napoleon III as I said he named himself emperor on December December 2nd 1852 and at that point he wanted a ceremonial seat that was worthy of his title and was steeped in the history of France and so he decided that he wanted to expand and the Louvre. Um, he first started over in the Denon wing. Um, and then we, but the, we're kind of talking about the other side, but to, in the Denon wing, what you see today um, with the original Denon wing of the 16th century was the Bordelot is what it was called. And that is now the Grand Gallery. 
And that goes along the send side. So the building kind of came out and just was way over onto the side that was closest to the send. And so what Napoleon III did is he added that whole area onto it. So if you're standing at the pyramid and you look up at the Dunant wing and you see what you see in front of you is all that he, what Napoleon III added. He literally doubled the size of the Louvre um, when he added all these. And those are those three wings that go across the wing in the middle of the Salle d'Etat, which is where the Mona Lisa is, of course. And then you have the the red rooms, the Pompeii red rooms, um, and then all the floors below that. So he really did a ton of work on there. But then he decided that he wanted to expand the other side. So if you were standing there at the pyramid and you were looking north towards Montmartre, you could look straight through from, you know, pretend the pyramid was back there then. You could look straight through there and look right at the Palais Royale. There was no building there at all. Like there was just nothing there. And so he decided that he wanted to have that all created and he wanted to have the what we know as the Richelieu wing. He had that created for the Ministry of State and it was going to be also um, the Ministry of State. He was going to put barracks in there. He was going to put the post office in there. The library was going to be in there, the, you know, the emperor's library. All of this stuff was going to go in there. And so, again, massive change to what we know of the Louvre. Um, he put Louis Visconti, um, who well, was born in 1852. His grandfather created the v Vatican Museum, which I thought was pretty cool. And his father was a curator of the paintings department at the Louvre. He was put in charge um, by Napoleon III to actually create all this. And there is a really cool painting and it's down in, well, actually, it's not on display right now. I just recently was down there to go look for it. Um, and it was not there, but it's a really cool painting. And in this painting, it was painted in 1853 by Ange Tissier. And it's called Visconti pre uh, is presenting to Napoleon III the plans for the new Louvre. And in this one, the you see Napoleon III and Empress Eugene Jenny is sitting down. Visconti is standing there in front of this blueprint. And on this blueprint behind him is the outline of the Louvre that we know of today with the big black parts or what it what what it was, I should say, of that day. And then off to the side, you see where Visconti drew in the whole other side that was going to be for the Richelieu because he also wanted to finish connecting the Tuileries to the Louvre. So just like the side on the south, a clock with the Grand Gallery, they wanted to do that on the north side, connecting the whole entire thing. That's insane, like how much work and time. And I mean, whenever you walk into the Louvre, I'm like, oh, this was just all always here, you know, like, but as you said, they added a lot more. Yeah. And you do have, you know, that's what's really kind of cool about it is you have, you know, it's called the Grand Dessin that was Henry the Fourth. It was his grand design that he had this idea. And all the way through up until Francois Mitterrand in 1983, they all continued all of this, even though you had, you know, after Henry the Fourth, you had Louis the Fourteenth, you had Napoleon the Bonaparte, you had all of these rulers, Napoleon the Third, that basically were so arrogant, they wanted to make anything that they did more theirs than anything else. But they all, every single one of them kept this original idea that Henry IV had in mind and kind of kept adapting it, but keeping that in there. Um, Napoleon III, um, from 1852 to 1865, that's when he worked on the, when he worked on the Louvre. 
And he was, because he was president from 1848 to 1852, and then that's when he had the coup d'etat, and then he was uh, emperor until the 4th of September, 1870, when he, that's when he wanted to alter the plans, like he had his first plans, and then when he had the coup d'etat, he was like, now I'm taking it over even more and turning it into this, you know, amazing place. Um, the room that is where the Mona Lisa is now, that was the Salle d'Etat, so the 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 room of the state, what it used to look like, I would give it anything to have that come back. The ceiling was this amazing ceiling that even had uh, a balcony where people could sit in on either side of the entrances on one of over the door. It had Napoleon on a horse and the other side had Charlemagne on the horse. Um, and I've seen like black and white etchings in the my Louvre library of that. And it would be just amazing to be able to see that again. Um, but they had this and then they added the imperial riding stables and everything underneath that. And so when you go in there and you look up into this one part, if you know what you're looking at, look up at the capitals and on the capitals, they all have animals. So horses and bears and everything. That's because that's what where, where the stables were. I always knew that stable part, but it was kind of hard to imagine like how you're describing it. Yeah, it was. I mean, the, this one was like the, you know, where they had like the fancy, you know, ceremonial stables. Um, and they had this another entrance in the core, uh, Lufel. That was where they used like they put the fancy carriages and everything in and had the big horseshoe ramp um, that is reminiscent of the one that they copied from Fontainebleau. So it was, you know, there was a lot of stuff. So when, you know, the life of the Louvre from the 12th century till the 19th century, essentially, changed so many times and if you know what you're looking for when you go in there or you take somebody that knows all about the Louvre hint hint then you could go through there and you could see how it changed and there's even markings on the wall that kind of give you a little hint if you know what to look for who did what yeah definitely take Claudine with you guys I mean you might not remember all this you need someone <laughs> to tell you right there and there it's more exciting I do have my wonderful client, Susan, that I love it when she comes. Um, she comes a few times a year and she brings her little notebook. She has her Claudine notebook. And so we'll walk around and she takes notes. I love that. We all need yeah. a note taker. We need a note taker. Yeah. Um, but in 1854 was the first time that it was ever mentioned in writing that the Ministry of State in the Richelieu wing was mentioned. It was also going to hold three other ministries, the Telegraph, the Printing Press, and the Military bar basic Barracks. Sorry. On the 15th of August, 1857, which the 15th of August was the birthday of Napoleon Bonaparte. And so he tried to make it the Saint-Napoleon Day. And then Napoleon III brought it back again. We don't celebrate that anymore. Um, but they had a huge celebration in there, and they had a play called Le Cat de Louvre, so the four ages of the Louvre. It was performed at the um, theater in the Palais Royal, which I would love. I cannot find anything else about that. And I'm like, I need to see the transcript. I need everything. And it's, I can't find anything. I need everything. <laughs> I need everything. But the in 1858, the first four floor apartments of the ministry were created. We will do a whole separate one about that because people know them as the apartments of Napoleon III. But there's a little trick to that. He never actually stayed there. Uh, but we have to do one just all about that one. But the Richelieu wing, so the Pavillon Richelieu that's in the middle. So if you go to visit the Louvre um, and you walk from the Rue de Rivoli into the... Um, 
into the pyramid, you go under the Pavillon Richelieu. And that before um, had a library above it on the first floor, but it was destroyed in the bloody week. Um, and so they, when they decided in 1983, the physical definition of the project was laid out, doubling the space of the museum. And this was all under the Grand Louvre project of Francois Mitterrand. And Francois Mitterrand wanted to be the one that finally finished the grand design of Henry IV. And because the Louvre was getting thousands and thousands of people a day, and they used to just come into the door of the den on wing. They were like, we have to figure out a way to make this work. And so that's why the pyramid was created. And with the pyramid, they were able to then get people in quicker, move them to the three wings. But at this point, you only have the Sully and the Dunant wing. And so the Richelieu wasn't even open. So in 1983, they did the, the kind of laid out the definition. The final um, approval was done on February 3rd, 1984. And on February 13th, 1984, I.M. Pei, the architect, the Chinese-American architect, Oh, signed off on it that this is what he was going to do. Um, there was a whole thing with how he was selected. Usually you have to do, um, and they even just did this with Notre Dame after the fire, where they open it up and they open up to the public and anybody could submit their idea for the design of this. But I.M. Pei hated doing that because he kind of got really screwed around on an earlier project because of it was like this open competition. So he refused to do that. And Francois Mitterrand, he called him directly anyway and said, I just want you to do this. And so we're just going to be kind of sneaky about it. And everybody got upset. But when they did put the plan in, they had an archaeolo two archaeologists, Yves de Keith and Pierre Jean Trombetto. He, they were given two years to excavate the entire Corps Napoleon. And then the backside, the Corps Carré, for Michel uh, Fleury and um, a gentleman named Monsieur Couteau, they were given one year to do the Corps Carré. When they started digging into both of these places, they found a whole lot more than they were bargaining for, um, which we'll have to talk about another time. But after they finished all that, after the inauguration of the pyramid in 1989, that's when they were like, okay, now we're going to work on the Richelieu wing. So the whole Richelieu wing, when that was created and it was used for the ministries, you when you look at it now, it's all normal and it just flows right into the rest of the museum. But when it was built and it was done by the ministries, it was much different. They had um, some of the, in the pavilions, the three pavilions that you have, there was eight floors in there because they had these mezzanines and they had offices and they were, at first they had no idea how they were going to do this how they were going to adapt some places six to eight floors into three so it would flow into the museum. And so what they ended up having to do was completely demolish the entire innards of the Richelieu wing, except for where the apartments were. Wow, that's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, I have a couple books and it has pictures in it and I'll put some of the pictures on the, my website and it's fascinating. So you have the outside of this that's, you know, in the 1852 to 1860 that it was built and it was all done um, by Hector Lufel. And so they want to retain all of that as much as they could, but to make it work for the inside. So they just basically like just gutted it down to the basement where they had all of these uh, fireplaces. They decided they weren't going to use the fireplaces. So what they did is they just poured the fireplaces um, with uh, fresh concrete and it hardened. And by doing that, it helped basically give the walls more structure to hold up. So because it's just literally was like three floors from the and the roofs were taken off. 
And so it was just like, it was just the shell. It just was the two walls and then a few of the walls in between, but everything else was gone. Wow. That's really cool how they're able to set that up. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. So then you have the Marly, the core Marly and the core Puget. The two, if you, when you walk in there and you go through the Richelieu and you could do this without even going into the Louvre, walk through there and look down on either side. That's the member's entrance. Um, and you could look down into these two courtyards. And originally like the Marly, um, which is the one um, on the west side, the Marly was parking just a parking lot for the ministry and on the right the Puget um was the parking lot offices and the La Poste and then the Corsava which which is a smaller one that's just to the east of that one that was what they used as a police barracks so they had to figure out how to they could use those and use those for sculptures because they had all of these incredibly heavy marble sculptures that had been at the at the Chateau de Marly and the and also the Tuileries. How were they going to do this? Because the rest of the Louvre, you've got some of the structure the 16th century. You can't put a statue that weighs four tons on those floors because it would just go right through to the basement. Could you imagine? Oh my goodness! Yeah. It'd be like, oh, oops! <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have put that there. Uh, I guess that wasn't working. So they had to figure out how to do this. What's really fascinating that I learned. And now when I walk in there, I don't think like I love all these different things that I've learned. And now I definitely need to talk to, uh, you know, a engineer <laughs> or an architect. Um, but like they even had to try to figure out because like to get into the Richelieu, to get to where you could go through these courtyards because it was underground, there was no way because of the way that they did the pavilion above it, how were they going to link those so people could go? So they dug into the cellar and they did that. And that is called um, the crypto um, yard. And they would go down there. And so now when I walk in there, like today, I just now I'm like, okay, now I, I, I just know these things now. And it's just, it's so cool to think of, you know, I just can't ever look at that the same anymore, knowing how they created it. So they did it so it would go deep underneath and it would connect the two courtyards. And then the courtyards itself, each of them have three levels. And so they were able to do that because then they could lay, level out all of the sculptures. They also did it um, so that it brought in, they put trees in there. So there's trees in all of those, in both of those courtyards, and it's a ceiling. So the ceiling was done by Pierre Rice. He was a Irish, uh, it was an Irish company and he is Irish architect. And he did it. So, you know, like taking the idea of the pyramid itself, but because of the size of the pyramid and, and how it kind of is on this perfect square base, you couldn't do these with these rooms that were kind of rectangles, but they were kind of wonky rectangles. And so he created it using these aluminum tubes that these aluminum tubes would also reject half of the zenith light coming in and the heat and putting it back out to the outside. Um, it would also help with the acoustics. That's insane that they knew how to do all that stuff back then. But no, this is like, I mean, this is 1990. Like this is a 30 <laughs> some odd years ago. ago. <laughs> it's not that long ago. And that's what's so amazing about this part of the Louvre. It's like, this was, this is open since I graduated from high school. <laughs> <laughs> but oh it is, um, I mean, and the pieces of glass, there's like 60 different shapes of glass on these two ceilings of how they did it. But what's really cool is when you go in there and you sit there, sometimes I go in first thing in the morning, we went the other day. 
And uh, Alex was like, well, there's just nobody here. Why is that? And I'm like, because they all go to the Dunant wing in the morning and I could go sit in the Corpuget for an hour, complete silence all by myself. And you're sitting there and it's like sitting out in the garden and you've got trees and it's quiet. And we were saying that all it needs is they need to have like some parakeets in there or something to fly around. <laughs> a little noise. Just a little, some like sweet little birdies going around. Um, but it is, I mean, it's fascinating to think of all these things that they had to do. Um, they also, for the, had the thinking of the light, the, um, they had to create it because it's what's best is to have, um, you know, real light, but you can't have direct light on paintings. So the top floor, the second floor where you have the Medici cycle and you have the um, Northern European school and a part of a little bit of the French school, they had it. So some of them are called actually cruciform staff ceilings. And so they kind of, some of them look like it has a cross up there. They did it so that the, the, they had it. So it was bent at a 35 degree angle and it was used a special paint that would help reflect the light and diffuse it direct sunlight that came down um and this would also help with the heat and so now you you know i never i can't ever go in there and not look up and i had somebody a teenager that really wants to be an engineer so i was really excited because i was like okay i'm taking you over here and i was telling him all about all of the ceilings and how they engineered these things uh, which is really fun. And it's neat because you do look up like at the ceiling in the Richelieu, or I'm sorry, in the um, Medici room, they are all at an angle. And you see that where it's at an angle and now you know why. Yeah, and you it's don't even cool. have to be an engineering student to learn these things. <laughs> I know, but now that I was the expert on the floods from the episodes we did earlier this year, now I will be an engineer expert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not really? <laughs> yeah. But it, when they, you know, for the, for this whole section, because it was this great opportunity, they were able to, you know, move even more. And this was, you know, 30 years ago. So there's no, I've never been able to find something that says, you know, like in 1939, when they emptied the Louvre, this is how many pieces are there. In 30 years ago, this is how many pieces. Now we know that there's over 35,000 pieces, and that's only 32% of what the Louvre owns in 408 rooms that are stretched out to be eight miles. Wow. So what, you know, obviously back then, I mean, we could, we could have three Louvres now, and that's the only way they'd be able to put all this on display or even more. So yeah. for the Richelieu wing, they moved five of the seven um, departments they added there. They did sculptures, um, antique orientals, paintings, um, graphic arts, which is not there anymore, and then objet d'art. So the first floor where you have the apartments of Napoleon III, that's mostly all objet d'art. The second floor is where you have the northern schools I mentioned, and then the lowest floor, the ground floor, and then negative one is what they call it is all of the statuary, the French statuary. So it was gave them an amazing opportunity to change all that. But even though, of course, you know, I have people all the time, they're like, which do you love more? The building of the loop or the art in it? And it really, really would be a hard thing for me to decide. If I you put a gun to my head, I probably would say the building itself, um, just because it's so amazing. But one of the coolest things about the Richelieu wing has nothing to do with the art and there's no art in the entire space. When you go in there and you go to the Richelieu wing and you scan your ticket and then you go in and you take a right and there's the escalator well. So the escalators, um, which, you know, you wouldn't think like, well, that's a pretty cool part. But the way that IMPay designed it, 
is they, again, gutted the entire thing. And this is a really great place to go to see basically how that is, because it's the three sections of escalators. And on either side of it, he created these huge walls made out of um, limestone from Burgundy, which is what they also used in the courtyards. And in it, though, they did these two huge circles. So when you're going up or down the escalator and you look to your left or right, you're looking into either the Court Napoleon on one side or the Court Puget on the other side. So it's not like you're at, at the mall in an American mall and you're going up this like endless, you know, abyss of escalators. You're going up there, but you still are looking and you're bringing in everything around you. And so it's pretty fascinating. One of the cool things that they were able to do by doing this project in the Richelieu Wing is because it was the 1990s, they were able from the outside, it's completely the same. It's still the 19th century building, but they were also able to keep all the windows because in the Sully and the Dunant Wing, you see those windows on the outside, but you don't see that many windows when you're inside, depending on the rooms, because a lot of those, they just covered up with a fake wall. The Grand Gallery should have 80 windows, and there's only like four that are open that you could see out because there were so many windows, you can't hang art. You know, you'd have just 10 feet in between windows for art. Um, but what they were able to do with the Richelieu is keep most of those windows. You don't see any in the uh, the Medici Gallery. But they were able to to incorporate all that and then bring that, you know, and vice versa, the inside to the outside and also have it basically talk back to the Corps Napoleon and the 16th century Louvre. Well, I love that I can go in there and listen to our podcast and remember all of this. And guys, remember, you can hire Claudine to do a private tour for you so she can tell you all this as you walk with her. And make sure you head over to ClaudineHemingway.com to learn more. Thanks for listening today, guys. If you're interested in learning more about Claudine, her tours, history, and the beautiful photographs that she posts all over Instagram, tune into her website, ClaudineHemingway.com.